Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash onpay. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Andrew Wyatt. He's the CEO and co-founder at Cala. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Thank you. I'm I'm very well. Yourself? Doing great. Doing great. Sheltering in place. Yeah, fair enough. Like like the rest of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what I think what you guys are doing at Kala is actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Absolutely. So I, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay. And uh, born in Florida, so a bit of a bit of a southern boy. But people tell me that somehow I managed to not get the the Tennessee accent after being there for about ten years. Okay. Very cool. So you went to university. What did you take, and why? So from the time I was about eight years old, I was confident I was going to be an anesthesiologist, pediatric anesthesiologist. I had a great experience with um, the anesthesiologist when I was getting my tonsils out. And he kind of explained to me that he was the unsung hero kind of behind the scenes, but, you know, super critical role and and really cool guy. And so for whatever reason, I was stuck on that. So I went to University of Tennessee, studied pre-med, and even through high school, was starting to do a lot of shadowing at hospitals and doctor's offices and stuff. And I kept seeing all what I, even as a young person, perceived as like gross inefficiencies. Okay. Um, and so I was curious around like, you know, what can a practitioner do to be more efficient and whatnot? And so I started taking some business classes on the side. Okay. And one day in one of my business classes around operations and manufacturing, the professor spoke about lean manufacturing for healthcare. And that kind of, that moment set me on a path that's kind of impacted the rest of my life. And long story short, I ended up getting a dual degree in, in pre-med and logistics supply chain management, ended up working for a pharmaceutical company in India doing um, a, a sort of domestic, pretty crazy logistics problem. And at the same time, I'd gotten into medical school you know, in the sort of cliche way, went to India, decided to bail on my whole life plan and, um, and, and focus specifically on supply chain. Okay, interesting. So walk us through the rest of your career and then how you, you, you and your co-founders came up with the idea for Kala. Yeah, so, you know, much to my parents' dismay, I came back from India, um, told them I was no longer going to be a doctor. 
luckily the same group that was doing and kind of really pioneering lean for healthcare at, at the university of Tennessee okay. were plugged in with um, a number of, you know, huge multinational companies that they were doing executive education for. And this one company called Denmark or not called Denmark, sorry, called Grunfoss based in Denmark. were looking for a profile for this special program where, you know, someone that had clear international experience, um, but had worked in, you know, logistics and, and things like that in the past, ended up moving to Fresno and sort of a four part um, rotation program for them. So I was in Fresno, then I was in Denmark, um, then I was in Kansas City, and then I was kind of all over the world for the last project, Taiwan, Budapest, China, Suzhou, China, cool. and um, working on the really macro supply chain problems, um, like realigning the full like North American supply chain, raw materials coming in from Denmark, to one project I was, you know, specifically on the plant floor in, in, in Fresno, trying to figure out a way to optimize, you know, a specific pump line and, and get the products to customer quicker. Interesting. It was sort of a, a kind of, you know, fast track of a lot of different supply chain problems at a company that had, you know, over 22,000 employees. And the one thing I realized is that I can't really make an impact here. And, and so I was already kind of thinking about like, what can I do to, um, you know, be more impactful, um, work at something that's like a little bit more um, agile, I guess you could say. And I, you know, I've been reading TechCrunch the whole time. And, and so I was flying back to Denmark to, to tell my bosses there that I was going to quit and basically start consulting to them um, on a, this project that I was working with like, enterprise social media meets supply chain management. And I bet this guy on a plane and he's like, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. But what you should really do is go on AngelList. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, people that are going to be looking for operations folks in this sort of like Uber cab world. And uh, so he's like, you should go in there and see if you can find something. And so like in the airport in Schiphol airport in Amsterdam, I typed in supply chain <laughs> into <laughs> AngelList and, um, ship with a Y popped up and they'd just gotten featured by AngelList. And I thought to myself, and you'll appreciate this obviously coming from you know the design world, but it was shipping and logistics and it was beautiful. Yeah, like the, the interface design was incredible. And I just spent the last two years messing around with SAP and, you know, ZD195 transactions. <laughs> and, and I was just like, this is incredible. I have to be a part of this. And so I, I sent like a crazy cover letter to Kevin and Josh. And a week later, I was in San Francisco, pitching them at their house. And like two weeks later, I was their first employee and, and head of operations for ship. Very cool, man. Okay. So what made you leave them to co-found Kala? So in about 18 months, SHIP raised $62 million. Wow. John Doerr joined the board. Uh, There's, you know, hundreds of employees. It was really this amazing, you know, once, once again, just fire hose of the face experience. Sure. I learned a ton. And one of the things that really struck me was that we were hyper-focused on being Uber for shipping because Uber was the biggest thing, you know, it was the biggest name in tech at the moment. And um, a lot of investors thought Uber for shipping was like one of the cases where it's just so obvious. Right. And so we're really focused on the consumer 
use case. So solving the problem of having to go to the post office. Got you. What we found though, is that these same individuals that are potentially, you know, avoiding going to the post office are also using platforms like Etsy, eBay, Shopify, WooCommerce, whatever, to start their own sort of little side hustles or, you know, full businesses. And they started using ship all the time to basically outsource this kind of core, but not necessarily part of their core competencies as an individual, um, a core process. Right. And at the same time, they're using Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and Snapchat towards the end to, you know, build this audience and market it. And so it was crazy. It was like, oh, wow, like all these people are using these platforms to basically not have to build, you know, a 20, 30, 40 person company. This is super interesting. Yep. Okay. So it just happened that I was connected with some people that were in the fashion space, um, some friends of friends, and a lot of the early ship customers in San Francisco were, you know, boutiques or, or people that were kind of running these sort of like small fashion businesses. And so that's what kind of got the wheels turning around that space. And, and so I started kind of thinking about, you know, what, in, if we sort of look at the future, how our brand's going to be built right. and it's not the way that it's done today. That's for sure. You know, requires millions of dollars of investments, deep network and factories and manufacturing in Asia and tons of expertise when it comes to the technical details. And so you see people that do merch like Teespring and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, but then the barrier from going from merch to launching a proper fashion line is, is great and dramatic. And, and so that was kind of the, the sort of fundamental ideas around Cala. Um, and so I managed to convince my, uh, one of my, my favorite engineers from ship Dylan to, to join me and, and be my co-founder and, and start working on Cala. Interesting. So how did you guys get the first version of the platform built? Did you guys raise some money? Did you bootstrap? Walk us through that. So we raised a little bit of money and we made the tech, the, the great San Francisco mistake of trying to come at the problem space with a very techie solution because we felt like that's what we needed to kind of create a way, a wedge into the space. Okay. For people that don't so, understand what that means, do you want to just maybe explain that quickly? <laughs> yeah. So I think I'll give the specifics of, of our example, but first um, I think sometimes people in San Francisco and sort of tech in general tend to oversimplify the way that things are, are done today and feel like you can just come in with a sort of like, you know, whiz bang tech solution. And then instantly that will become, you know, the universal way that things are done. Gotcha. And a lot of times, you know, one of the most important things is change management and, you know, getting buy-in from those, you know, existing players, especially when it's, not just a pure tech experience. When it's an online offline hybrid, yeah. you have to to really understand and respect what's what's sort of laid the the path for where you are. Interesting. No, that that's really good advice. I 100% agree with you. I've ran into that a bunch like either personally in my career or you know working with other people or or just like even other startups you're just like like sure at the end of the day 
the user really doesn't care how cool your tech is if it doesn't work or it doesn't really solve their problem, right? Like it, it's it's a bit interesting, right? And, and like a realization, Absolutely. right? Exactly. And, and part of it is how it's presented to them. Part of it is, do they care? Part of it is, do they just automatically not like you because you know you're a threat to the, yeah. the way that things are today sure. um and that's kind of one of the biggest developments of my whole career is understanding that like the idea is important but it's not nearly as important as i think a lot of people think it is a a, a mediocre idea that's well implemented and has full buy-in is something that's going to you know fundamentally change um you know an industry yeah, and realistically... So let, me, so let me tell you about my bad idea. No, yeah, go ahead, sure. <laughs> so so our kind of first foray was we built a mobile app, um, and, and by we, I mean Dylan. Um, I designed it, but, but Dylan built it entirely himself in like six months, um, where we could take a few photos, and um, based off of those photos and you kind of like, you know, the place your phone on the phone on the floor, take a few photos like front back, we could pull your individual measurements. And then our, we, we would go to designers and we'd say, Hey, design a small capsule. Um, we'll buy the raw material up to a certain amount that could make like a certain amount of units that we think we could sell. Right. And we'll launch them through the app. When someone buys, if we already have their measurement details on file, we'll just automatically cut and sew and, and ship it to them. If not, you know, they'll have to take two photos and then we'll cut and sew and make it on demand, ship it to them. And on average, we were in sort of like a five to seven days um, because we were already sitting on the raw material in, in Los Angeles. Right. Okay. Okay. So why did In retrospect, work? there's a million reasons why that didn't work. <laughs> okay. Okay. The, the market is too small. And I think we, and this is kind of a powerful lesson for people that want to start a brand or, or a business in general is when you're getting feedback from people, almost no one will tell you what they really think. Yep. And so when we went to, you know, and we were specifically focused on women because, um, you know, there's a lot of made to measure suiting type stuff for men and um, women, you know, body shapes are even more you know, different than the men's are. And so we thought we should, you know, start there. And so pretty much everyone we interviewed, you know, said, absolutely, I want, you know, cool designs, but actually custom fitted to my body. Um, you know, absolutely. Uh, this is something that I'd pay more for. Um, you know, absolutely. I'm, I'm okay. If it takes a little bit longer, um, turns out not really that many people were willing to wait longer, pay more or have more awkwardness in the checkout experience Got you. in the world of free returns you might as well just buy two sizes and send back the one that doesn't work. Yeah, that's fair. Interesting. Good lesson though. Most important lesson that we've actually had because we, while we were doing that, the tech was cool enough to attract the interest of this company called made. And they basically were birthed out of milk studios, which is a, you know, where Kanye does a lot of his music videos in, in LA and they have a New York office. And, so we ended up doing this collaborative event with Made LA. It was kind of like a fashion festival. Very cool. And we powered this collaboration between Wiz Khalifa, 424, and this brand Pleasures. And 
we, we tried to have, you know, all these people go through our 3D body scanning type stuff. And it was in the process of, you know, sort of prepping for this launch that the, the designers gave us some pretty tough feedback. And they said, hey, nobody cares about custom fit. And so, of course, you know, being defensive, <laughs> I said, well, you know, it's going to help you reduce returns. We've actually seen, you know, almost half the, the return rates for our, our designers. We don't have returns. Our products sell on Grailed and, and eBay for, you know, double, triple. Okay. Interesting. Well, it'll help get your customer into the right size first. People buy the wrong size just so they can have it. Okay. Interesting. So I was like, all right, I have to close my laptop, time to go home, tail between my legs. But then, but then he goes, what, what you should build is a way where we can just upload our designs and then you make it and it shows up on our doorstep and we don't have to deal with all of the, you know, back and forth because production's a bitch. Yeah. And they, they literally in that moment that I, I called Dylan cause he was back in SF. I said, Dylan, I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> our customers told us what to build. And, and at that point we were basically entirely out of money. So we worked for the next six months. Well, I ended up working for a much longer than that with no, with no salary, but um, we ended up working for the next six months, like on our couches, scraping by and, and building the first sort of V1 of, of what Cal is today. Interesting. So how did you guys like, like just live during that period of time? Were you doing some freelance work? Were you working a day job or, or get us through that period of time? So, you know, the, the benefit of, you know, having worked at ship before was that, you know, once they'd raised $50 million, you know, I was making at least like a decent salary. Um, and so I, gotcha. I was saving a lot. And then, you know, Dylan had sold a company previously um, and, you know, he, he had saved a lot as well, but then if I'm being fully transparent, my wife, well, the girlfriend at the time, right. you know, she had a great job. And, and so she definitely, uh, you know, I, I covered my portion of rent, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> that's good. We got to do what you got to do. It worked out. Right? Like everybody's situation is different. So it, you got to do what you got to do. It makes sense. Absolutely. And I, I haven't yet met a founder that's like, you know, it was actually smooth sailing. My financial projections were perfect. <laughs> I had exactly enough cash saved. And, uh, and you know, the first person that we pitched, uh, they, they invested. Like <laughs> everyone at least that I've talked to has this like, yeah, I like could barely afford my phone bill. And then at the last moment, you know, it all came together. Oh yeah. And I, I think anybody that tells you that happened is basically just lying to you. Cause even the most successful people, even that that does happen to, they still struggled well before that in, in some other thing or different idea. Right. Like, like that's the thing that I always find interesting about it. It's, everybody feels like a complete and utter failure until one day it just happens or you, hopefully it happens. It exactly. doesn't always happen. <laughs> what I also think comfort is the enemy of progress. And so yeah. if you're comfortable, you don't have like you, when you don't have to, yeah. often you won't. Yeah. And I think that there is some element of like, when you're just barely going to squeak it out and not be completely screwed, it, it kind of unlocks 
you know, a whole another dimension of, of humans. And I think we're kind of seeing that right now is with COVID to be, to be honest, is like yeah. when things get really, really bad, only then are we using, you know, all eight of the top supercomputers in the world to like fight one problem. Only then are people bonding together and, and trying to come up with solutions. And um, I'm not <laughs> comparing starting a company to solving COVID, but uh, there are some, some similarities to the struggle. No, it's, it's good advice. So how has Kala stayed the same and transitioned to what it is today from that initial kind of pivot and, and replatform to just provide brands the ability to upload their designs and then you guys just handle the rest? So started with building on top of the existing manufacturers that we'd sort of worked our way in with in LA. And so I started okay. by going to every, I, I found like 25 manufacturers on the internet. Turns out if a manufacturer's on the internet, it's not the ones you want to work with, gotcha. but luckily kind of worked our way into the underground, largely, you know, Hispanic run um, apparel you know, industry in, in LA and found some great manufacturers there. But then we've now evolved where we hired um, Lauren Devine who helped uh, do Yeezy season one through four for Kanye um, was at helmet lane helped launch HBA before that. And then was at Alexander Wang for three years after that. So we've, we've basically, we took that initial idea of like, just upload my designs and, and then get it produced. No problem. And we've paired it with experts from sort of the traditional sense. Um, obviously, you know, she's a little bit more inspiring having worked for us, you know, smaller and, um, much tighter timelines than, than the typical, you know, fashion brand. Um, and then I was lucky enough to meet our head of product, Ryan, at a, a Superhuman Happy Hour. Oh, and he was the founding founding designer at Superhuman, oh, okay. um, which I've been, you know, a huge fan of. And so, that, you know, it's like all the pieces have started to come together where it's like, well, you can't just upload your designs. We need to create, you know, like, I think a lot of times, especially like traditional brands that are or traditional companies that are building a, a, a tech product, they sort of take the offline process and try to build the one for one online version of that. Right. So you see this with like some of the pattern making software um, where it's like, Oh, this is your e drafting table. And here's your, you know, ruler, just like that ruler that you would have at your desk. And we tried to avoid that by really rethinking like, you know, the 15 year old TikTok star in his parents' basement, like right. how, they're not using a drafting table and a yeah. ruler. Like how are they, you know, explaining what they want? And so Ryan's really helped with those initial, you know, thinking through of the user experience of getting the design ideas out. But then it's kind of like peeling the onion. And what we realized is that, you know, getting the design idea out there is important, but the actual supply, like digital supply chain management you know, approvals and commenting back and forth and timelines and pricing were all sort of things that we've now subsequently solved, um, which has then, you know, enabled us to solve the next most important customer issue, which is things around like ghost designing and financing and fulfillment and, you know, branding and website design. And so now versus where we were, let's say two years ago, Cal is a brand building platform you know, everything you need in one place. And, you know, within three to four months, you can go from, you know, signing to launching your first collection 
and make a million dollars your first year. Interesting. And then how do you guys monetize the platform? So we have three revenue streams. Okay. First is our, our monthly subscription. Okay. And so um, our, our lowest subscription is 500 bucks a month if you pay for the full year up front, okay. 750 per month if you do month to month. And then we take a rev share on, on every deal. Okay. So an actual like percentage of the brand sales. And what that does is that enables us to take all of the costs related to um, launching a successful brand and defer them as much as possible so that you're paying out of the revenue once you're already successful. I got you. Historically, you would need 50000 100000 $300,000 just to kind of get that first couple samples out in, in the first collection. And so, you know, you can sort of do that for as little as seven fifty. But we're really focusing now on our, what we call our uncapped tier, which is, you know, built for people that already have an existing online audience. Okay. Our kind of sweet spot is around a million, you know, sort of across all platforms and up. And for those people, um, it's, you know, between, it's around like 5,000 a month. And, and we take like a, between a 30 and 35% rev share. It's sort of our list rate. Gotcha. Okay. So just, I just want to go back to the, the, the platform a little bit. So walk me through if I'm a fashion designer and I'm launching a brand today, how do I use Kala? Like, like walk us through how I would use it and, and, and until I get my actual physical product at my door that I can sell to somebody. Absolutely. So first though, I want to say like, we don't, necessarily even consider our customers to be fashion designers a lot of them are okay it's really we call them creators sure, and so I suppose yeah, a creator could be you know you could be a, an nba player but you love streetwear um right. you could be you know a, a professional soccer player but you want to make handbags um you could be you know a, an OBGYN doctor that wants to launch you know a line of you know sort of pre and postnatal um, clothing based on the experience that you've seen. So it's kind of, you know, you don't have to be a, a classically trained, you know, fashion designer. Um, and if you are, the tools are even more powerful. Interesting. The okay. experience and the flow is like this. So you, you basically, you know, you sign up, you get access to the platform and you can start adding in mood board reference images. You can just drag and drop um, any sort of photos, AI files, PDFs, kind of whatever you have. Okay. And we have um, a commenting tool, which now you, enables you to, you know, anywhere on anything that you upload, you can start annotating and you can start collaborating there as well. So you could, you know, drop a pin on top of a t-shirt and say, I, you know, want this to be a V-neck instead. And you could at mention me and say, Hey, what do you think about the V-neck? And if, if I'm a collaborator on your design, I can, you know, reply back, you know, thread it in. I could even, you know, attach an image of a V-neck that I like, um, you know, so kind of like the notifications that are, are familiar with Facebook and, and Instagram and the comments and threading that's, you know, familiar with, with those platforms. Um, and then we also have like measurement tools. So you can, you know, click and drag and say, you know, this logo across the chest, I want to be, you know, call it five inches or something like that. Right. But you can really start with just, 
the sort of high level of, of what you want. And if you're at our uncapped level, we'll actually, from the very beginning, place an experienced ghost designer with you to actually help you through the creation process. So you could say, I want a streetwear line and I love pastel colors. Okay. And they'll start uploading design ideas, you know, that kind of like mirror that. And then in the platform, you can sort of see, you know, all your different designs are in the collection. You can remove them from the collection if you want to save them for later. And then when you submit the collection, which is, you know, clicking a button within 24 hours, our algorithm will kick back the all in pricing for the entire collection. So you can see the exact unit cost all in. It includes things like e-commerce product photography, all the technical design, the fabric, um, you know, the manufacturing duties, tariffs, importation, really for the first time ever, someone can see, you know, before they spend a dollar on production, they can see, all right, this t-shirt costs $15. That means if I sell it for 45, I'm going to have a, you know, 60, 70% margin. And, and then real time, you can change the number of units and see how the pricing scales with the, the number of units. Oh, very cool. Uh, yes. Okay. Interesting. So, cause I, I've never built my own um, clothing by, by any means, but I'm assuming just based on from what I've heard from others and it just would probably make sense that there's probably so many hidden costs and factors that somebody that's never done it before, or maybe has done it before, probably won't even think about just because of a fabric they pick or, or, or whatnot. Do you want to talk about some of that? Absolutely. So I could, I could speak on this quite well because this is how we started. <laughs> I went to LA and I, you know, was blown away by how friendly and helpful everyone was because they knew that I wanted to start a fashion line. And so the, the technical design person just charged me $500 to, you know, do a quick, you know, sketch of the idea. Right. And then they connected me to their friend that was a pattern maker that charged me a thousand dollars to do the pattern. And then connected me to another friend who, you know, pointed me to, in the right direction of like a, a fabric place. And since we couldn't find the, the exact fabric we wanted at, you know, mood fabric, they, you know, charged me $500 to source from a factory vendor that they knew. So finally, I have my fabric, I have my pattern, and then they connected me to a sample sewer who charged me $1,000 to turn the fabric of the pattern into a sample. And of course, the sample wasn't what I wanted. And so they're like, oh, well, for pattern revision, it's 150 and you know, then you have to go get more fabric and then you have to pay the sample sewer in the same amount. And, and so it's the, the whole system is just set up to just bleed you of whatever you know money that dad gave you um and then they're on to the next gotcha and what's you know interesting through the context of where we are today is like no no designer with the factories that we work at no one charges for samples you, you know and so like we're sending enough volume to our partner network um that you know a designer day one on cala gets the same resources and the same level of experience as if it was Alexander Wang, you know, making 500 hoodies with a, a manufacturer or something like that. Gotcha. Um, and, and just the time savings and the pain and the cost just there, um, you know, makes it totally possible for, for new people to be able to actually be successful. Interesting. So 
I want to talk a little bit about some of those integrations that you guys just handle or allow me to connect with uh, pretty pretty easily. Yep. So baked in to Kala, you get access to our global supply chain. Okay. We've modeled it after the way that Zara works. Right. And so instead of having one big factory and pushing everything through the same queue, we're basically real-time bidding the project to the best fit manufacturer based on the type of product, number of units, the complexity, and the time of year. And so why this is important is, you know, when you have a black swan event like COVID, um, if you have everything in a very robust supply chain, you know, and that supply chain is disrupted, your whole year is gone pretty much. And so we actually typically in the fall, stop bidding as many projects to China due to Chinese New Year. And instead, we'll route it to India, Portugal, Central America, US, um, Japan. And so we actually, in, in this case, had a, you know, we still obviously had delays, but it, the overall impact to our network wasn't quite as, as dramatic. Right. Back to the kind of the flow. So you're communicating to all these people directly through the platform they're never going to come back to you and try and renegotiate pricing. Everything's sort of taken care of. Once the product's actually completed, we'll do a third party QA if it's over hundred units per style. Otherwise the factory will do the QA and then we'll import it to one of our fulfillment partners. Um, and then we'll basically handle the integration between the fulfillment partner and your Shopify or Squarespace or, or whatever your e-commerce storefront is. Okay. Interesting. And then who actually ships the products that I created? So, and I guess to back up a little bit, before you ever get to a point where the production is completely finished, you're approving materials in hand. So they'll be shipped to you wherever you are. Um, Buttons, zippers will be shipped to you wherever you are. Um, Once you've approved that, then they'll send a sample. You'll You'll approve the fit of the sample. If it's not right, we'll fix it, send you another one. And so there's kind of a, a number of different steps where at each step there's the, you know, an approval required before we can move forward. Right. And so you pretty much know what you're getting. Then once the production's completed, it'll actually go directly to the warehouse. It's barcoded and polybagged. And so then when your customers buy through your site, it's automatically drop shipped to them wherever they are in the world. Okay, so I don't have to worry about shipping anything, even. And as with everything on Kala, because of our, we're basically aggregating a lot of demand together to make us feel huge. And so uh, it would be hard to get amazing shipping rates like we offer, you know, day one to designers, if you were trying to negotiate that directly. As a matter of fact, a lot of the designers wouldn't even be able to, you know, have a direct relationship with our 3PLs partners because they don't have enough consistent volume. But in aggregate, our volume makes us an important partner to our 3PLs. Interesting. No, that, that makes total sense. So you, you talk about, you have like this marketing experts. Do you want to talk about that a bit as well? Yeah. So when it comes to, to the marketing front, um, it kind of goes with this overall theme that we have, which is solving our customers next biggest pain point. And so initially we are hyper-focused on, of course, design and producing as the designers from 424 and Pleasure's Tools to do. 
then we solve fulfillment because it's no good if we're just sending you thousands of units to your house or your office. And once we fixed fulfillment and, and, and worked on financing, then it became, okay, now we have all this great product. How do we, you know, how do we help you sell that? And so a lot of the people we work with are coming with a big audience built in. Right. But similar to how we will place a ghost designer with an account, we also have digital marketing experts that will place with an account to help as well. And so, you know, the idea, the whole idea here, like you don't have to be an expert at anything to be successful. Right. And rather than spending eons of time trying to unpack the Facebook ad manager, you can just have a, a person that will, you know, execute based on the ad sets that, that you want and the people you want to target and, and basically get you amazing return on, on ad spend, um, you know, ravaging over 10 for some clients. Wow. Very cool. No, that that's, that's very cool. And so I'm curious then, how do you guys decide what features to add into the platform? Because you must have, especially probably some of your customers on, on some of your, your larger plans um, demand or, or ask for features, but sometimes they might make sense. Other times they, they don't make sense. How do you gauge what to actually add in into the platform without chasing your tail around every request that comes in? Absolutely. That's a great question because so many companies get pulled, you know, their product strategy is determined by the loudest voice or the biggest customer. Yeah. I think part of solving this is being super intentional on who your customers are. And, and we take a lot of inspiration from Rahul from superhuman here sure. where, you know, early days, superhuman, they wouldn't even let you, you know, into the beta if you didn't have a, a MacBook pro or a MacBook that was, you know, new enough. And that seems crazy to a lot of people, but what it does is it means that the product feedback that you are getting is by the people that you have conviction are your actual target customers. Yep. And so that's one piece that we've tried to, you know, implement is focusing on the people that we know are the customers that we want to build this business around in, in, in the first chapter. And so one of the tough things we, we did was we had to make the call to <clears throat> actually turn off our lowest level tier. Um, and so we had a tier that was basic and it was 150 bucks a month and we didn't take a rev share. We didn't offer fulfillment. We didn't offer financing, very stripped down. Unfortunately, what we found is that a lot of those people, even with access to our full supply chain, there's so many of the fundamental things around building a brand. They hadn't quite sussed out yet. Right. They were just so focused on getting the hoodie with a PVC pocket and a little like, you know, flight jacket dangly off the sleeve. But once we provided them that at five units, they weren't sure what to do next and it was taking a ton of our time and resources and they were asking for lots of features um, that, you know, were kind of potentially going to pull us in the, in the wrong direction. And so uh, we had to make that tough call to kind of cut that tier. We definitely want to bring it back one day, but you know, for right now it's, it's super important that we're focused on this uncapped tier of customers because that's where we're seeing that we're providing the most value. Interesting. I actually, I, I think that, that's actually really good advice because 
it is really hard to make the call to cut off paying customers, even if they are on the smaller side of things, right? Because it's still revenue yeah. coming in. Sure, you could argue it's more of a hassle than it's worth, but at the end of the day, especially if you're trying to raise money or, or put it on a balance sheet, if you cut out that, you're you're getting rid of a bunch of your customers, right? And especially if you're trying to raise money, that, that can go, you know, a bunch of ways and sometimes it's it looks really bad but it so for you guys to make that call is actually really good advice it's tough you know you go from a board deck where one quarter your target is 65 customers and then the next target you're telling them that your target is 15 <laughs> it's like wait wait, what's wrong here? Like, what are you guys doing? Sure. And so, you know, it, it is about ruthlessly prioritizing, ruthlessly focusing. And we're fortunate enough that Janet from our board and our other investors were aligned with what we were sort of seeing, which is that not only would it be better if we close that tier, but it might even be business critical that we remove all the different things we're trying to do and just focus in on one clear customer and one clear value prop for them. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's interesting. So we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but I really want to get your thoughts on, is there any other advice or myths that you'd like to demystify um, that you see that are pretty common or you're just like, stop doing this or, you wish more people would, would do. <laughs> I think the idea that the way to launch a successful fashion brand is to make a bunch of samples, do a runway show and hope to your lucky stars that a retailer is going to give you a nice fat PO and thus kickstart your fashion brand. Okay. That's dead. That, that that was dead last year. It was dead five years ago. Now it's super dead. As a matter of fact, a lot of great brands have had their wholesale or their PO orders from the retailers canceled because now Neiman Marcus is filing bankruptcy. Right. A lot of the smaller, there's so much uncertainty on, on the retailer side that that model is just no longer relevant. No, Mirror sorry. that with, all of the tools like Bolt or Shopify or Webflow or you know XYZ e-commerce enablers, it's never been a better time to launch a direct-to-consumer brand. And that that's, you know, I think my biggest feedback right now is I know things seem uncertain and scary and dark and gloomy, but the bigger you are, the more you have to lose. Totally. And so there's, I think there's McKinsey study that, you know, I think it's like 56% or maybe the 80% of large publicly traded fashion brands are now in financial you know, distress and financial crisis mode. And, and a large portion of those are going to go bankrupt within the next 12 to 18 months. Anyone who's sitting on a ton of inventory is in a really, really tough spot right now. For an individual or a small group of people, that you know want to start a brand 
they have the opposite situation right now. Like they're anti-fragile. They have endless opportunity because of all of the struggles that the large, robust players are having at the moment. And so I think there's never been a better time to, to start a brand. And there's never been more tools um, to help brands be successful. And so, um, you know, I think my, my feedback would be go for it. Start building. Start building now. Interesting. The, the other thing, too, uh, that I, I kind of want your thoughts on is I, I think some people worry about the different sizes and, and all the returns they're going to get. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think, like, I know there's certain stores I go to or well I just shop online at this point but um and I have for years (laughs) is like I know that like a medium shirt from this brand fits me perfectly or I know the jeans from this company if I get these sizes in this style will fit me like I think people are, are smart enough now that once they've ordered a few things from your company and figure out how it fits them and they might have to send one or two or a few things back they'll eventually figure out your sizing and, and what fits them and they just, they'll just figure it out. Right. Like, do you, do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I, I do think it's like, I think it's an issue that the large players run into more okay. than the new upstart brands. Okay. And here's why. Okay. New upstart brands are typically not, bringing a $10 white undershirt tee to market as their first product. Um, They're typically bringing to market, you know, maybe it is a tee, but it's a, you know, oversized tee that they're going to try and sell for $60. And here's the story behind it. And this is what, why it resonates with my audience online. And so when people are supporting you there, there is, they have skin in your game almost. And, and so they've been following you and your story. And so when they buy that product, you know, maybe, maybe it is the wrong size, but they're going to be really accepting and, and, you know, help, you know, even provide you product feedback and things like that. And so there's a lot more of like, we're all in it together versus, interesting. Oh man, you know, this, this, this sucks that I'm not going to support this company anymore. Um, that being said, there's also not nearly enough, sort of science that has gone into sizing. And, and so one of the, be- the benefits of, of Cal is that you can set up your sizing however you want. Okay. And we have experts that will help recommend the sizing based on who your target customers are. Uh, and so we have one brand that actually offers extra, extra small all the way to extra, extra large. Okay. And it's you know, crafted around several different people that are those different sizes. And so instead of, you know, following the rule of thumb block, like a lot of the bigger brands do, um, and by block, I mean sort of like the average sizes of, of the, um, the product, you can sort of make it whatever you want. And so if, if your medium happens to be extremely large and that's what your brand's all about, great. And, and, and you know, as long as it's clearly articulated on the product page, which of course we, we help with, um, you know, I think, it's, it's, we haven't seen it be a big problem. No, that's, that's good to know. But sadly, we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other links you want to mention? Perfect. So our website is ca.la. And 
you can sign up there if you're interested. One other interesting thing is if you go to causes.ca.la, the subdomain causes, sure. we're actually doing a program where we're supporting local businesses, musicians, people that are kind of being disrupted by the current um, coronavirus situation. And so um, there's about 30 people that we've basically enabled them to create a t-shirt or a hoodie or a tote bag with their brand on it. And they don't have to pay anything up front. And if they sell 20, then we'll make them starting in May and, you know, send them the, the money. Um, and so it's a great way to, um, if you are a small business or, you know, a hairdresser or, or um, musician to, you know, not just have people do a GoFundMe, but actually, um, you know, buy a, a cool product from you. Um, and, and it's a way to, you know, give back a little bit. Very cool, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.